Welcome to episode 304 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're finding ourselves in the midst of some really great soteriology conversation. That's the study of the doctrine concerning salvation. And hopefully people are tracking with us because we had a stellar, excellent, definitive conversation about this idea of the call last week, but the call actually being of two parts, more or less external and inward or outside and inward, however you want to bifurcate it. But this idea that it's more than just the call, which we hear all the time. And so today we're moving on to this second part of the conversation, which is the inward call, the inner call. <laughs> so stick around for that. It's going to be yes. super great. But of course, before we get to that point, we got to affirm, we got to deny it's been a week since we did this. And so I'm sure we're both eager to speak to those first two things. And because there's no rules or better yet, we set the rules for this thing. I think we should go negative first. Oh. So I'm really curious, what are you denying against on this Slipping episode? it up here. So uh, this actually ties into our conversation today. So I'll, I'll keep it a little bit brief and maybe we'll, we'll loop back to the context for this. But I've been having some interactions on Twitter uh, lately um, and denying solo scriptura, which first of all is bad Ooh. Latin. Uh, it's just not real Latin. I'm not even sure who started it, but it's not good Latin. Um, but solo scriptura as opposed to sola scriptura is sort of this like pigeon theology where instead of believing what the Protestant reformers taught and what was later called sola scriptura or scripture alone, uh, instead of believing what the reformers taught, which is that scripture is the ultimate authority, that it is in a class of its own, that it is the norm that norms all other norms, but it is not the only norm. It's the norm that norms all of the norms and is not itself normed. Uh, I feel like we're on an episode of Cheers and something like, norm! Um, <laughs> One norm to rule them all. So Sola Scriptura argues that the, the Bible is the only infallible rule of faith and practice, but it does not argue that other sources of authority, as long as they are consistent with the Bible, are not valid or that they don't exist, or that you should try to interpret the Bible in a vacuum apart from the historic testimony of the church. Right. And I was in an interaction today, and and I actually didn't plan this, but it, it ties directly into what we're talking about, and it tied into what we were talking about last week. I had several people tell me that they had zero, uh, zero influence from any human source, that they just picked up a Bible, and they read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit moved on them, and they... They became Christians and were converted with zero uh, zero influence or input from anyone. Um, which, first of all, if you live in the United States of America, just isn't realistic. It's not viable. Um, secondly, I really doubt that these people are just like walking through the park and found a Bible on on a like on a bench somewhere and picked it up and were like, oh yeah, oh John three sixteen. I believe I'm a Christian now. Like I just that just isn't real. Um, so either they're lying or they're they're just delusional about the reality of things. Um, I'm sure at some point in their life they heard something about Jesus. They heard something about the gospel. I think it's even more likely that someone had been evangelizing to them at some point and it implanted a seed. Um, and the main issue with this, and particularly as it relates today, and we'll talk about it, is this just is not what the Bible teaches. 
So I'm going to leave it there because I'm sure this will come back up because this this outward inward call thing that we're going to talk about today directly relates to this. Um, and you have to have both. You don't have just an outward or an inward call. And this solo scriptura, this uh, this me and my Bible and nobody else, no no other influence, no other statement, no other uh, no other assistant from the church. On top of just the weirdness of thinking that somehow these people encountered a Bible and had never ever encountered a Christian who has said something about the Bible before, um, that Bible came to them because Christians felt it was important to translate that into English, and that also includes a fair amount of interpreting as you understand how translation works. So we always receive the Bible in concert with what the church has historically taught. That does not in any sense mean that the church created the Bible. We're not Roman Catholics. It doesn't mean that the church somehow has an authoritative statement on what the Bible means, right? The scripture is a magisterial authority and the uh, the confessions and creeds and the testimony of the church are ministerial authorities. But that ministerial authority is still there and it still matters and it's still valuable and we can't do without it. So I'm denying solo scriptura or the more technical and accurate term might be something like nuda scriptura or something like that. Yeah, that's not bad. That's a pretty good word right there. Uh, it strikes me. This is great because sola scriptura is not the same as solo scriptura. So right. by the way, just as people are saying it, if you can put the name Han in front of what you're saying there, and it doesn't change the meaning, then you actually got it wrong to start with. But this a proper understanding, like you're saying, a sola scriptura, it doesn't lead to some kind of weird, like individualistic, like me and my right. Bible in the woods approach yeah. to Bible interpretation. It's because of like Christ's gifts to the church through the centuries that we have the privilege of standing on the shoulders of giants and the scripture comes to us, of course, by God's superintending will, but also through those means. So, so many have like said this much better than I, but that's exactly what we ought to be after there. Yeah. So that's really good. So it's not, again, it's not Han Solo scriptura. It's solo. La scriptura. And yes. that, like you said, encompasses not that we are alone in our interpretation, but that we actually stand on the shoulders and ought to, not, not begrudgingly, but that we ought to look to these other resources which help us to understand. I like the idea of what you're saying, like one norm to norm them all. That's what we mean, but it doesn't mean that if something conforms to that norm, it is a helpful resource right. that allows us to understand the scriptures better. Yeah. And it's funny because, um, you know, we're talking about this and and one guy goes, so I'm on Twitter again. I'm not on the Reform Brotherhood account. We're keeping that closed, but I'm on my own personal account and I'm trying to walk the line and I have to like log out sometimes for like a couple days at a time because I know myself. I'm trying to walk the line between sometimes being a little bit like snarky because that's just, there's a little bit of jabbing and a little bit of playful ribbing. And then sometimes just being sarcastic and mean. And so in this conversation, somebody said like, well, I just, I just picked up a Bible and read it. And then I, I just learned the gospel from that. And I said, that's just not real. And, and on top of all that, that's the opposite of what Paul teaches in, in Romans. And he goes, well, I've got Augustine on the phone for you on line one. He wants to talk to you. I said, yeah, I'm sure he does. And his mother, Monica, who witnessed to him from his youth, probably wants to talk to you while we're at it. So it's like the idea, you know, they're pointing at like Luther, like, oh, yeah, Luther just read the Bible and got the gospel. I was like, you know, Luther was like a monk for like 30 years right. before. Like this idea that we don't have a history and that we somehow come to the Bible without any sort of background knowledge or background influence. Um that background influence is not determinative and it should not be determinative, right? We don't, we don't, um, this all started because somebody asked me how I knew that Kyleism was, was a heresy. 
And I said, well, I learned it from the church. And then it was confirmed when I read the scripture and they lost their minds over saying, I learned it, learned it from the church. But the reality is that for most of us, our theological positions don't come from a pure, uninterpreted, unfiltered, uninfluenced reading of the scripture, nor should they. For most of us, uh, I mean, if you think about the history of the church, most people were born and baptized in the church. They were raised in the church. Their parents taught them the faith. They handed it down to them. And they learned these things before they ever could read. And most people in the history of the church couldn't read at all. So they learned it by hearing, which is exactly what Paul says. Right. So we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, when we start to talk about the inward call, because these this group of people that I was arguing about or arguing with, more or less were saying that there is no outward call. It's really just an inward call which is just not what the Bible teaches. Ironically, in their zeal to elevate the Bible, they were actually denying a core biblical teaching from the Apostle Paul. So enough right. about that, since we're going to come back to it, I'm sure. But what are you denying? So if your denial is like a U.S. state road, well-maintained, mine is going to be, because it's off your road, but it's going to be a hard left into the country nice. on a dirt and gravel road with lots of potholes. And this is mainly just me shaking my fist, standing on the lawn as an old <laughs> man, getting upset about maybe things that don't matter, but maybe they do. You can be the judge of that. So I have this sense, this is something that bothered me for a long time. I may have mentioned it in this podcast before, but it's come up uh, recently in my own thoughts. And that is like some of the evangelical language, evangelicalese, that is like so watered down and so weird that we carry forward. And so I'm denying against all of these weird words that we use to describe our, I'm trying not to use these words so I can blow them up in a second, <laughs> to, to, do, to describe the way in which we interact with God and the scriptures on a daily basis. So as to somehow impart some sense that these things are part of our acts of worship, but also in a weird inadvertent way seem to be like spiritual humble bragging. So yeah. I'm denying against oh, man. words like devotions, quiet time, anything else that we might say that's like trying to convey some kind of personal piety when it comes to studying the scriptures and inadvertently either elevates that to a place of like legalism or it's just super weird. So one of my yeah. favorites is, um, many of our listeners know my father is a minister and because he's a minister, he's asked to share often these kinds of things. I think what people are asking for like is a homily or maybe, but see, I can't almost can't use a sentence without saying it like a devotional because yeah. I even dislike that. Because again, that, that implies like I'm doing something. It is my devotion to God by reading his word and praying. Anyway, the one that we joke about a lot that he has gotten is somebody will often be like, can you just share like a nugget? Just, just share like a nugget from the like scriptures. A chicken nugget. Oh my gosh, I hate that so much. <laughs> and I, and I don't even use that word like you know. I try not to overuse the word like hate. I really dislike. I just think yeah. it's cheapening everything. And I know like we we can get better words, which I'm going to get to in the affirmation portion. But I'm just denying against this like language. Let's get better language, people, loved ones. We can speak better about this, and we can do it in such a way that it doesn't turn into legalism. Because I think sometimes this idea of like devotions, quiet time even like personal prayer closet. Like I know what we're trying to say, but I think they take on these words, take on a life of their own. And then they kind of pervert the very action itself. Yeah. Even if we're just kind of describing it casually or with good intention. I yeah. mean, what's, what say you about those terms? Well, I, I'll start by sharing the best example of what you're talking about that I have ever encountered. So I later found out that this, this organization, this person was associated with is actually a legitimate cult. So it, that's why it sounded like a cult, but I didn't know it at the time. <laughs> okay. So I, there was a girl I knew in college and, um, she went off to, uh, like another school 
And I ran into her in Kansas at a wedding and I had no, I had no idea where she had ended up. And so I asked her what she had been doing for the past couple of years because she just sort of like transferred without telling anyone. She just sort of disappeared one day. And she said, well, I've been spending the last several years just devoting myself to the quiet place. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, as a Christian uh, who's familiar with the Bible, I could kind of piece together what she was saying. Right. Um, or at least what I thought she was saying. And I thought like, you got to interpret it though. Yeah, right? I thought it was like, it was a real, like a real intense season of prayer. It turns yes. out she was actually part of a legitimate cult and it, that's why it sounded so culty. But, <laughs> but that is a good example is like, we, we use these words. We take words that probably had good origins. Um, you know, like I think the doing my devotionals or doing my devotions probably comes from like the phrase devotional literature. So right. like I, I'm reading devotional literature over time because I'm doing devotions. Um, but even that like devotions is a noun and you don't do nouns, exactly. you do verbs. Um, so yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think a lot of those words are meant to give what should be a very ordinary practice, uh, sort of an air of, of an air of mysticism. It sort of roots it's in this like mystical pietistic, um, like works righteousness. Like I mean, exactly. it's it's Horton and Clark both say Horton and Clark sounds like the most boring law firm in the law, in the world. Um, Mike Horton and Reginald Scott Clark both have talked about how quiet time has become like the new sacrament of renewal yes, instead of exactly. instead of the Lord's Supper. And I think it's absolutely true. Like it becomes like if you don't um if you don't read your Bible every day, then like what are you even doing? It's like a that's like a mortal sin and like you're gonna fall out of a state of grace if you don't. Yes. So I'm totally with you. Yeah, that's really good. It is like a sacramentizing of that very thing. And I have no issue, of course. Like, I don't want people to think I'm like putting on blast devotional literature. It's just that we've kind of taken that word, like appropriate it for this time of reading the scriptures. And I would question for many people, is it devotional though? Is it like increasing your devotion? Is that the thing that comes out of it? Or is it the sense of like, I feel better because I read the scriptures today? Our sinful nature is always going to be prone to make that connection. It's just, I think it might be helpful at the onset to get rid of those words. I, I'm going to propose that I'm stealing from some others who are smarter than me. I'm going to propose a replacement, but that's, we'll save that for the affirmation. So what are you affirming with? So this is a like a secondhand affirmation, although I've confirmed it myself and it is awesome. This actually comes uh, from Pete Smith in the uh, Telegram chat. Uh, this is a website. I think you're really gonna you're gonna get jazzed up about this, Jesse. Yeah, it, you may have already actually heard about it now that I think of it, but it's web. The website is huffduffer.com. H u f f d u f f e r dot com. If you had to, do you know what this is? I do. Yeah, I have seen okay. this. Yeah. So let's pretend you don't. If you had to guess what this is based on what it's called, I would think it's probably something illicit having to do with some sort of green plant. But what it actually is, is uh, you can take any audio that you find anywhere on the internet or with a, a little like, um, it's called like a web snippet, but like a little bookmarklet, a little bookmarklet you put into your browser. Uh, you can do this with YouTube videos. Basically, it creates a private podcast feed and any audio or video on YouTube that you find on the internet, you can add to that podcast feed. It totally is like a game changer. So I run into videos all the time that I would really love to watch. Um, I'd really love to process that information. You know, maybe it's like a sermon and like this, the church doesn't have 
an actual podcast feed and I can't get the audio or whatever. Or sometimes it's like a lecture on like a subject that isn't theological that, or, you know, like it's a, a lecture at Stanford on some, some subject I'm interested in. I don't know why I picked Stanford, but, um, Stanford's a great school, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but now you can just toss it in your RSS feed and then it just shows up with your podcast because you subscribe to that RSS feed. Right. So now instead of, I used to have to do this like long, like convoluted process of like running the video through like a third party website that rips the audio for me. And then I have to, I have to upload that audio somewhere, generate my own RSS feed. This all does it in one shot. Um, and you can actually even do things like you could have multiple RSS feeds for topics so you can have individual feeds for different topics. And then when you rip the video or the audio, you just tag the audio and video and it creates its own feed. It's really a, a pretty amazing little uh, little website. And it's really changed. I think it's changed a lot about how I, how I think about YouTube and like what I can process and what I can't. There's two things I know for certain. One is that, isn't it, it the best thing to be a Christian? And the second thing is, isn't it a pretty good time to be alive? Yes, and the fact that yeah. this is like a really free service. I'll tell you what I've used this for in the past is this. I think it's actually a really great tool for picking up preachers. That's yes. a weird thing to say for like listening to preachers because like our, my church, for instance, for whatever reason, they do like video. Well, not for whatever reason. They're doing like video of the sermon, but they don't have a podcast. This is the great way to like stopgap yeah. that and yep. to pull it into your feed because I, I mean... That pastor's a pretty handsome dude. I don't need to see him though. Give deliver the sermon. I'd like to be able to hear it. Uh, I mean, I'm th I'm there on Sunday mornings. But if like I miss one, it was great to be able to have that. So this yeah. is a great way. If there's a lot of churches, a lot of like church organizations that are like broadcasting their stuff because you don't have to use. You can use any website. You don't have to use right. YouTube, for instance. But YouTube, of course, has a lot of great content that's yeah. generally available. So this is like one of those things that's almost unbelievable that it's free, right? Yeah. That you can just create this stuff and customize it and get like bespoke content yeah. that like you couldn't get. It it advertises itself, I think it's like create your own podcast or something. So that's really what it is, is like you just do what you want. Welcome to being alive right now. Yeah. It makes me wonder what I'm giving away. Like, what is it that we've talked about this before? Like if a service is free, then you're the, you're the product, yeah, you're the product. usually. So it makes me wonder, like, what is it that what is it that's happening here? What are they selling to who? It's it's probably like some sort of analytics thing where they're they're able to sell, you know, measurements on how many of what audio files exactly. and stuff, um, or you know, something like that. But I I don't even care. I'm like, you can do it. It's totally <laughs> fine with me. What I used it for. So I saw a a clip or a, a photo on Twitter of Vadi Bakum Vodi Bakum with a quote that seemed real sketch, like super, super sketch. Um, and I wanted to listen to the whole context, but the only place I could find it was in a YouTube video when he delivered the, like the whole sermon or the whole, I think it was at a conference or the whole lecture or whatever. And I was like, oh, I don't want to sit in front of my computer for the whole time. And I was like, Huff Duffer, boom. So I was able to pull it to my <laughs> podcast feed, listen to it at three times speed, get to exactly where I needed to and listen to the whole context. And plot twist, the person who made this little slide totally like misrepresented what Vody was saying. I'm not a huge fan of Vody Bakum, so I don't have any like skin in the game to like overly defend him, but uh, he was really, really misrepresented in this particular instance. So check it out, huffduffer.com. Uh, it's a little bit weird to set up at first. It's kind of like the account creation is kind of eccentric and trying to figure out like how to get the bookmark linen can be a little bit weird, but check it out. It's a sweet service. It is free. I'm not sure how they pull that off. They must be using a tremendous amount of bandwidth to do this. And I don't know right. how they, how they managed to pay for that, but 
whatever it is, I'm I'm here for it. I'm here for it too. Listen, yeah. nothing's free, but it might be worth the cost. That's yeah. all I'm saying. So I'm China totally probably knows all about what kind of videos I'm watching, and I don't even care. <laughs> You've just been labeled as like a Vadi Bakum like yeah. fanboy. That's it's the true. cost that you're gonna have to bear. Uh, I can deal with that. Yeah. See, it's worth it. Totally worth right. it. What about you? What are you? Are we on? We're affirming. Where are you affirming? You threw me all off. I know. Sorry about that. We're just making it, uh, flopping it around opposite time. So I just went on this you know, massive rant about don't call it devotionals. Stop with your quiet time. So I'm affirming with bringing a little liturgy into your daily life. And oh, so man. what I recently picked up in order to do that is this book called Be Thou My Vision. This is by Jonathan Gibson. And it's advertised, self-advertised, as a liturgy for daily worship. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could take some of like the excitement of the structure and the diversity and the specificity of what happens in the Lord's Day into my daily worship? And I really want to affirm this book because it's been fantastic. So let me just tell you what this thing is about. So this thing is structured to be, not of course a replacement for the Lord's Day, but it gives you 31 days of the following things, leading you through... Um, all this stuff. It gives you a call to worship. It gives you ador- a time of adoration, reading of the law, a confession of sin, assurance of pardon, a creed, praise, a question from a catechism. All three of the catechisms are in this book. Prayer for illumination, a time for scripture reading of your own design. There is the McShay Bible reading plan that's embedded in this text if you want to use that. A prayer and then a prayer of intercession and it always ends with the Lord's Prayer. This is a game changer. Yeah. Because I think like this book is really getting after what we say when we have devotional time. And I love, and here's the replacement idea, talking about that time as daily worship. I think that's yeah. the kind of language we should be using. What's our daily worship like? Now, of course, our daily worship is both structured and unstructured, but I love this structure. It's really kind of reinvigorated my time that I spend privately or with your family. You could, of course, use that in a joint setting. It's awesome. And it's all planned out for you. So you're getting prayers from all of these different sources, all of these kind of giants of the faith. You're getting all of the catechism questions embedded in there. And it's just like a beautiful rhythm. And there's like so much variety to it over these 31 days that when you come back to it again in the next month, it's a joy to see it all over again. I would be so happy if I was able to memorize everything that was in this book and I would be happy to do that. So this is like a real game changer. I love this idea of taking liturgy and making it that we all have informal liturgy and we're all worshiping something every day. This idea of taking it and making it more structured, but it's in a way that even in that structure, you're getting great variety and diversity every day in those things. But this is where like particularly Lutherans get it right in their liturgy. This idea of daily having these things of, you know, this time of confession, but then having scriptures picked out for you that shows like the absolution of that sin. It's really game-changing. Many people may be already doing this, but this is a great way to have it done for you so you can participate and enjoy it without the stress of having to try to put it all together yourself. So I cannot affirm enough, Be Thou My Vision, A Liturgy for Daily Worship by Jonathan Gibson. Nice. So I'm going to say something that maybe sounds a little counterintuitive based on what we've been saying about devotions. The word liturgy actually means like the work of the people or like public service. Right. And if you think about like Sunday morning, like the Lord's Day service, we often come to that and we call it like, oh, I'm going to the service. I'm going to the service. We don't think about what it means to come to the service. Right. And what we're saying is like, we're coming to church to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, like to serve God. This is, it's not like the service, like the, the minister is servicing us or 
God is servicing us. It's the people, that's why it's called a liturgy. It's the people coming to attend to the service of the Lord. And that also is something we should be doing on a daily basis as much as we can, right? It's not it's not the case that like if you miss a day of your daily service, your daily worship or your daily literature, whatever we end up calling it, you can call it a devotion if you want, if that's helpful. If we miss that, it's not as though somehow God is, is less pleased with us. But that also doesn't mean that God is not pleased with our daily acts of worship and service. Right. Right. And we'll, we'll get to this in this series that we're talking about, about how good works function, but a little sneak peek, God is genuinely pleased with the good works of the people. He's genuinely pleased with the good works of Christians. And there's a whole theological apparatus that explains that. And some, some people in certain quarters are losing their minds about this. Do what you want. Stay with me. Don't stay with me. I don't really care. But the reality is that, that God looks at our imperfect works and he accepts them as though they were perfect for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. And the difference between some people are like, oh, that sounds really Roman Catholic. Yeah, it would be if we were talking about them being something that merits God's favor. Right. That's not what we're talking about. God is not, God doesn't show us more favor because we do more acts of service or, or because we participate in more liturgies. But that doesn't mean he's not pleased by it. And I think something like this book, I haven't I haven't looked at this book, but this was a book actually that was recommended by Scott Clark on the Heidelcast, which is is kind of crazy to me because Scott is a very hardcore like Psalm only right, acapella. Exactly. Like he's he's a very hardcore and he he restricts that predominantly to the Lord's Day service, rightfully so. But for Scott, who is so like careful about devotional like devotional rhythms and not letting those become another uh another law another covenant yes. of works for him to recommend it it really means there's something there that's important and i i think i'm going to pick it up because i know i i have a pretty good rhythm of of reading the bible and of praying but i think my own personal daily worship um could probably benefit from a little more structure because sometimes it's like I just fit in what I can. And with something like this, you learn kind of how long how long it's going to take to sort of work through this and to devote right. enough time to it. And then you put it on your schedule. And now it's on your schedule. And that's a whole different animal. So, yeah, I think that's a great a great affirmation. And I've heard such good things about this book. Yeah, I was surprised. I'm always skeptical of books like this. And by the way, this feeds in great to like what you were saying before in your denial and what we're about to talk about in just a couple of minutes here. This idea of... You, know, you go through this book and you're getting, for instance, during your prayer time, prayers written by Charnock or Augustine. And you're realizing as you're praying these, these, these amazing, well-articulated prayers that I find leading myself into, like they're just a springboard. It's just like jet fuel on my prayer life, you know, because it's not that I read them and I stop, but as I read them and I think, well, I, I want to pray now, like I'm compelled to prayer. And having yeah. these like little signposts, these stops, these way stations along the way in my daily worship, something for it just it's amazing. Like I'm, I, it has like all of the the different creeds in here, and I think we underestimate the variety and the, the variety of expressions of creed that fall under the norm of scripture. And we're used to a certain number of them, like the Apostles' Creed. This just gives you exposure to all these, and by the time you're you're through with reading that our God is a God who is one in unity and yet separate and distinct. You're just buckling with praise. And that comes from somebody being thoughtful and putting this together. And I think my experience and understanding has been as I've grown older, older, that the church has been more about structure, not because it's the structure 
that gives us meritorious confirmation of something that we're doing, but it's the structure that we need to have this transformation of the mind that brings renewal. Yeah. That we just need signposts. We just need a corral, so to speak, right. to help guide us into proper worship. And then we get to stand, like, again, what a time to be alive. We get to stand on the shoulders of somebody who come before us to make that a reality. And we don't need, as you often said, to reinvent the wheel of you know how we approach worship or how we understand theology or how we come to articulate doctrine. We must always be testing those things. But the bottom line is that if Reginald is recommending it, then <laughs> I think it does say something about yeah. the standard of like the the book itself. So yeah. I would encourage people to check it out. Yeah. And this is just the way that the human human experience is, right? If you, you think about how um how kids learn, right? They talk about like the like the grammar phase of learning. Right. And in the grammar phase of learning, a kid is and you, you could say uh, the grammar phase of learning for a child's entire development, but you could also talk about the grammar phase of learning any particular discipline. And what the grammar phrase, the grammar phase is, is you're building a, like a structure and an edifice that's a scaffolding, right? right? You're building the basic scaffolding of a discipline. And then, then there's usually like there's the rhetoric phase where you start to plug stuff into that. So if you think about mathematics, I know this is a gross oversimplification, but the basic, one of the basic um, fundamental um, like units of mathematics is addition, right? Most most of the basic ar- arithmetic operations are a variation or a, a sort of a, a a version of of addition, right? Multiplication is just adding things over and over again, right? Two times two is four because two plus two is four, and two times three is six because two plus two plus two is six. Right. So that basic edifice of, of addition, that's part of the reason why most most schools start with addition, because you can't really understand multiplication until you understand addition. And you can't really understand subtraction until you understand addition. And this is a similar kind of thing. And and I don't remember which I know there's a book called The Trellis and the Vine, and this is exactly the same thing. When you want a vine to grow up a, up a building or in a certain structure or up a certain shape, you build an edifice and the vine will grow up that edifice. And the hymnody of the church, the liturgies of the church, the creeds and right. confessions of the church, they are that trellis that the vine of our faith, to get like weird and poetic all of a sudden, the vine of our faith grows. And you can either let that vine grow all sorts of which direction with no no direction and it's going to be all janky and, and weird, or you can put a good solid trellis in place and then that vine will grow in the direction that it should. And so like creeds and catechisms, confessions, books like this, other good solid uh, Christian literature. Like I read, I read, um, at one point there was a guy who's saying basically like, if you have a copy of Calvin's Institutes and a copy of Matthew Henry's uh, commentary, like you could actually formulate an entire biblical education and do just fine with just really reading and understanding those two books day in and day out, because that is a solid time tested edifice that our faith can grow through. Where if you just come to the Bible, and again, I'm not saying that the that institutes somehow norms the Bible, but if you just come to the Bible without any sort of guidance from anyone, you are probably more likely to get it wrong than you are to get it right. That says right. nothing about the perspicuity of, of the Bible. It says nothing about the operations of the Holy Spirit. It says everything about the sinfulness of the human heart and the limitations of human knowledge, right? So this kind of book, this kind of activity is so important for a vibrant Christian life 
not because it earns us something, but because it's just wise. It's just prudent to put these kinds of things in place. Yeah, it's just good practice. I was hoping you'd use the word trellis and you did not disappoint me. And and I would go like one step further to say that it's we need the trellis, but maybe the better metaphor for the plant is something like a hop, you know, like hops that you put in in beer. So we're going we're going alcohol now. Because <laughs> like vines are robust, they'll grow on the ground, but hops are like notorious temp- temperamental, like notoriously temperamental. They need a structure and we need yeah. a structure as well, I'd say. So yeah. you, you just need something. And if you don't think you need one, it just means you're doing your own thing, which can be okay. But isn't it better? I like what you said. Isn't it more wise? Wouldn't it be the best thing to rely on something that has been used throughout uh, time and throughout history, I suppose, in terms of uh, constructing a method and a mode? And again, you're just getting exposed to lots of good things. So that really is like, I think in some ways, once again, affirmations and denials for the win to lead us into our conversation about true. this idea of the external and the internal call. And I think we should just reiterate at the top of this conversation that we have words, these are words being used here. And I kind of bristle a little bit about call because the call has been appropriated by some as, you know, like people get called all the time. And sometimes when we think about call, we think that there's a volitional response to that call. We're kind of moving right. in a different direction yeah. in this conversation. We're talking, I assume we'll get into a little bit about irresistible grace and limited atonement when we talk about this internal call. But again, we've made this distinction between external and internal call. They're both proceeding from God, but the one functions externally only by the means of the word. I think we said this last week. The Holy Spirit joins himself to that word. So in this external call is the proclamation of the gospel. And I think what we've meant by that is this concept that there is biblical data. The biblical data tells us the truth about sin, death, and the devil, and about how God is just and justifier. But that yes. is also, in some ways, just data. The internal call we're going to move in today is this idea of like the penetration of the very heart of man, this powerful illumination of that data, revealing the spiritual mystery of that data. So of course there are facts and you can understand and erode or give intellectual assent to that data, but it's getting the spiritual mysteries in their essential form that powerfully inclines the will to embrace those mysteries so that they're both data in life. They are data on obedience of faith. And I think that's kind of where we're going with this idea of the internal call. Yeah. So as we've said a couple of times now, um, I'm going to read, we've said this like a dozen times an episode. I'm going to read from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, but what we've said a couple of times is that this internal and external call is tied to a particular phrase in the questions that surround what's called the effectual call. And so the effectual call is comprised of this external call that is um, is promiscuous and gratuitous, and it's extended to all who will hear the voice of the preacher. Right. And then there's the internal call, which is only extended by the Holy Spirit to those who will respond to the, the call of the preacher, who respond to the voice of the preacher. And so question uh, 70, sorry, 67 here of the Westminster Larger Catechism says, what is effectual calling? It says, effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect and from nothing in them moving him thereunto, he doth in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. There's the external word and internal spirit call. Savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, 
so as they, although in themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able to freely answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. Therein, and so this this structure of the external call of the proclaimed preached word, and the internal call of the secret special work of the Holy Spirit in the the wills and minds and affections and everything of the internal life of the elect. These two things, um, I don't want to say always, because I'm not sure that I can justify that by scripture, but almost always, uh, ordinarily, these two things are in place when a person is brought to faith in Christ. Now, all of, all of the bluster of what I said earlier about how I thought it was crazy that people think that like you can just read a Bible, you just find a Bible in a park somewhere and read it without any sort of help from the church. All of that to be said, God can and does move in ways that are not ordinary. Of God can call people immediately. He could give people a vision where he presents the entire gospel to them himself. That happened to the Apostle Paul, although Apostle Paul had lots of biblical background and lots of teaching from the church. But all of that to be said, we're talking about the way that God ordinarily works. And this is a side a side issue, and we're not we're not going to talk about it in this systematic series, but we've talked about this before, and I want to be sensitive to it. The Reformed position makes allowance for, explicitly makes allowance for, people who, for whatever reason, for a variety of reasons, are not able to receive the external call right. of the preacher. Right. right. And in view in the Westminster Standards and in other Reformed um confessions and statements that speak to this issue in view are things like those who lack the cognitive capacity. So would be people who have some sort of cognitive deficiency or some sort of mental deficiency that does not allow them to comprehend the call of the gospel. Um, in view would also be in the reformed tradition, most explicitly the baptized uh, infants of believers. Right so the, the canons of Dort speak to the fact that the parents of believer of the parents of children who die in infancy should have hope that their children are elect and thereby saved. And the key to this is that the the reform position tends to argue, and in the confessions, I think is explicit, that those people who are elect, who are unable to receive the outward call, the Holy Spirit acts immediately on them to cause the same thing in them that those who receive the outward call would. So infants who die in infancy are regenerated, given faith, their minds are enlightened to the knowledge of truth of Jesus Christ so that they freely embrace Jesus Christ offered to them in the gospel. How right. that works for an infant or for someone who lacks cognitive deficiency or cognitive capacity to do that mentally, I have no idea. But that's what it, that's what the Bible seems to indicate. So just to head that off and then we can sort of move on from it. Nobody in the reformed tradition is saying anything like an age of innocence. Nobody is saying that infants who are saved are saved because somehow they're not sinful or they don't need to be saved so they go to heaven or something like that. Nobody who's actually within the Reformed tradition is saying that. What they are instead saying is that the Holy Spirit causes them in whatever way is, is appropriate and possible to have faith in Jesus Christ, and they are saved through that faith just like anyone else who is saved is saved. But this idea of these extraordinary circumstances, rather than sort of prove the rule or rather than be the rule, they prove the rule. The fact right. that there are these, I don't want to call them exceptions, but these extraordinary circumstances demonstrates that there are in fact ordinary circumstances. And that's what we're going to spend the most of our time talking about is the ordinary circumstances. Right. That That's well said, I think. And an excellent segue to me asking you, can I trigger some people right now? 
Let's do it. I was taking a big drink of my beer to, to refresh my <laughs> sorry, throat. So let's do it. About, sorry about that. All right. So let me like springboard off that to trigger some people a little bit. Um, here's my hypothesis or better yet. I, I don't even think it's a hypothesis because I, I believe that this to be the truth as the scriptures explained to us. If you collapse the external and the internal call, you're creating an idol. Uh, that yes. just full stop. You're creating an idol. And I'm going to pick on a particular group within the Christian family because one, it's so easy. And two, on like the tree of theology, they're the lowest hanging fruits. So get ready, Arminians. So like (laughs) in order to protect the idol of man's like ability and of his like goodwill as being the cause of salvation, Arminians generally, but evangelicals, I would say writ large, they would prefer to do away with this distinction between external and internal call. If they do that, they have to then contend with everything you just said. Because like at the same time, you'll hear people speak about, and this is tragic. Like nobody's saying that this isn't isn't a great tragedy. Speaking of like unborn children who die in the womb and trying to wrestle with, well, what does that mean? Where do they literally go? Yeah. They, Arminians, evangelicals, they would keep these calls the same. And in doing so, the effect would then be to say that there is no like efficacious operation of God that working in one person over another. Instead, right. it would be related to the outcome. So instead of like the intent, now we're just talking about like the outcome, namely that one person obeys the call of God by his free will, which enables him to either respond or reject his call and thus to be saved. Another person is going to just despise and reject this call by the same neutral free will. If you collapse these two things, you are inadvertently or otherwise saying that there is a neutral free will in man, right. and you're setting up man as an idol itself. Yeah. And the scripture is going to rebuke and refute that stuff all over the place. So when we find like in Romans 8, 28, those who are called according to his purpose for the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Like all of this stuff leads us to the place like what you're just talking about, that the actual excess of faith in those who are called proceeds from a purpose. And that purpose comes from God, like in Acts 13, 48. And as many who were ordained to eternal life believed. So there's like a real infinite difference between the corrupt intellect of man, you know, that is like the Arminians and other proponents of free will and the Holy Scriptures. The question is, like we've said so many times before, but here we see it like coming to roost in irresistible grace. Does the obtaining of salvation proceed from man? Is he the only and essential cause of his salvation or is God the only essential cause? And can man, being absolutely incapable, do nothing to obtain that salvation? This is why it is necessary to split the two, the external and the internal call. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think first to be fair to our Armenian brothers and sisters, just because we want to be charitable and uh, accurate, um, they would affirm a neutral will in man, but they would, of course, uh, most Armenians would, of course, argue that 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 will is returned to this place of neutrality by the provenient grace of the Holy Spirit. And it's yes. that the ability for man to come back to this neutral place is not a, it's not a denial of the fall. Although I agree with, uh, with the canons of Dort and the sin of Dort, that this is a form of Pelagianism to, to argue that all men are born in this neutral state, even though it was God who put them back in that, but that's all aside. So to be fair to them, they do argue that this is still the result of the Holy Spirit and it is still something that God accomplishes for people. Um, but this, you're right. If you collapse these two together and you don't properly understand the, the fact of the distinction between these two things, you do end up with some weird, some weird things where like the Holy Spirit is almost not active in conversion in right. 
in a lot of these theologies that, that it's, and you see this with people like William Lane Craig. And I don't, I, I, it may seem like I love to just bash on William Lane Craig. I really don't love bashing on him. I wish there was less to bash on him about. You know what um, we need is like one of those counters. It's like, it's been this many episodes yes, since we yeah. bashed on William Lane Craig. But like William Lane Craig seems to operate on this sort of lowest common denominator, um, removing as many obstacles from the gospel for kind sure. of apologetic. Right. So he doesn't, he doesn't try to argue for the Trinitarian God of the Bible because that's too high of a standard. So he argues for this sort of general theism as a way to sort of get people a little bit closer to, to the gospel. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't argue that a Christian needs to hold to in inspiration and inerrancy of scripture, even though he claims to hold inerrancy himself, because that's a barrier to the gospel. And so his, his apologetic is in, almost entirely focused on removing these obstacles and the underlying assumption is, well, if you can just remove enough obstacles, then you can convince the person's intellect to make the right decision. Right. Well, the person's intellect is not the only problem that has to be addressed. It is certainly a problem that has to be addressed. And I think that's the other side of this is sometimes people, and this goes back to the conversation I was having online today, sometimes people act and think as though the intellect and man's intellect, man's cognitive faculties, their knowledge, all of these things are totally irrelevant in conversion. Right. Well, if you read what the Reformed tradition, as it's interpreted the Bible, argues, it's an enlightening of the mind. That's exactly. not a spiritual cat. I mean, it's a, it's exactly. a metaphysical category. We're not talking about some mechanical change in the brain that the Holy Spirit does. We're talking about an enlightening of the mind. The Holy Spirit illuminates certain facts to us, right? So you can have two people who both acknowledge that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was a historical figure. You could even have two people who acknowledge that the best historical evidence argues that he died and then was alive again at a later point. You could have the same two people who affirm all of the same facts, yet one of them trusts those facts and trusts that those facts are true for them. Right. And the other doesn't. And that's the difference between a Christian. But the facts are still relevant. A person who doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that thinks that's a myth, can't possibly have saving faith. And I think this is part of what is sometimes difficult for Christians to wrap their head around, is that our faith is a historic faith, and there are actual historic facts that must be acknowledged and confessed in order for someone to receive and respond to the, the call, Right. The, the, the fact of the matter is that the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as a historical fact that happened in real time and space is an article of the faith. The fact that he suffered under Pontius Pilate is an article of the faith. And so this outward and inward call cannot be collapsed. You can't ignore one in light of the other. Otherwise, you end up with either this radical sort of man-centered, the only difference is my will kind of a theology, a la Arminianism or radical evangelicalism or Socinianism, or you end up with this sort of super mystical, I don't have to have any facts. The Holy Spirit just does his thing right. without any outside influences. And in reality, we all receive these outside influences. And we talked about this last week. This is the external call. How will they know if they do not, how will they hear if no one goes to preach? Well, the, the apostle Paul is saying that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, but that hearing comes from preaching. 
So we can't we can't divorce the back half of that chapter with the front half of that chapter, or even just the back half of that passage with the front half of that passage. The word of Christ comes to us primarily through the means of preaching. And again, that does not mean that it is utterly impossible for someone in some bizarro world circumstance who has never been experienced or exposed to anything related to Christianity. I don't know right. who that person would be in in the Western world. I just can't conceptualize a person who somehow has never been exposed to the basic contours of the Christians of the gospel. I mean, it's, it's pervasive. I mean, you watch like even TV shows that are making fun of it are still exposing you to what it is. Um, you, you could watch big bang theory and put together the actual gospel of Jesus Christ from the jokes that Sheldon's mom makes about being a Christian. Like they're, they're making fun of Christians and they're still, giving you the gospel through that. That's a whole like presuppositional apologetics lecture going yeah, on. Yeah, right it is. But the fact is that everybody has exposure to it and almost everybody has had the gospel positively presented to them in some point. And right. so to think that we only have the internal call and the internal call and the secret working of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that happens and the only thing that matters, not only is it just illogical and it doesn't fit with actual human experience and reality, it's opposite from what the Apostle Paul teaches is the ordinary means of salvation, the ordinary mode of salvation, which is that we hear the preached word yes. and faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. So I, I just think you're you're absolutely spot on that if we collapse these two or if we ignore one in favor of the other, we end up in such dangerous spots. You know what this is like? It's like, have you ever seen my, my mother, if she's listening, she, she never bought this because I think it is a ridiculous prod, product, but have you ever seen the grocery store like the jar of peanut butter and jelly oh, like yeah. swirled together, which, which does seem weird. It's a bit like this, I think with the internal external call, like if the, let's make this super weird because it's, we're drawing to an end and this would be the appropriate time to go off the rails. If the external call is the peanut butter and the internal call is the um, jelly, this idea that like they, they are, but I'm not saying they're working together as if like they are distinct entities outside themselves, but this idea, like you're saying, you receive the biblical data and the Holy Spirit applies that in a way that brings like this enlightenment that is both intellect and will and inclination. It changes and it sanctifies all that stuff. That's the internal call, but it cannot happen, nor should it happen, of course, outside of the biblical data. And that biblical data comes to us by hearing through preaching. This is the way that God has made it right. normatively. So those two things must, you know, kind of come together in consummate harmony. And it's like that jar, they're blended together. So what I have a problem with is just like when we make the calling this kind of like really hyper-spiritualized, like ephemeral thing and either go into all peanut butter or all jelly and say, that's the call. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't work that way. If you get all peanut butter without the jelly, so amazingly awesome. If you get all peanut butter, then what you get is someone who has no actual changing sanctification no intellect that has been inclined to pursue the things of God because they've been convinced under the weight of the Holy Spirit. And just to kind of head off some discussion there, I'm speaking of like this idea of irresistible grace, this grace that reunites us with our true humanity, wherein by the power of the Holy Spirit, we desire to draw close to God because he has not rehabilitated us, but regenerated us. And I would say that so many people who focus on the call and a collapse method speak about or infer that what we need is rehabilitation. That if yeah. somehow we just get enough information, we'll choose the right thing. And that's the problem. We just won't choose the right thing, even when we have the right information in front of us. Yeah. And so that's what we desperately need. This idea of the internal call that generates faith and love by the power of the Holy Spirit, but comes to through the external ear. So again, it's the difference between hearing 
and listening. So if we have just peanut butter, it's going to leave man in his natural state, in his wickedness, which is to reject that external call. It'll happen 100% of the time, like with, yeah. without fail. He despises that call due to his free will, which wills by way of necessary consequence because he is corrupt in a full way. So that's the true of all of us. And yeah. so we need to have this regeneration, again, the removal of the heart of stone, and instead of being replaced with the heart of flesh, so that we can come and receive that external call because the internal call has come through us, by the way, the Holy Spirit. Not least of which to mention that I think the internet is the biggest proof of stake that is so difficult for people to change their minds, right? So yeah. like everything you were saying just about like the intellect, let's, let's throw out like the spiritual component of this just for a weird experiment. The intellect is so difficult to change, especially when people are entrenched. And in some ways, again, here's like a misappropriation of the word internal, this idea of like in our general culture now, take a minute, breathe deeply, see what's inside of you. That's the internal thing. See what speaks from the inside. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about just like Luther would say elsewhere about righteousness. It's an alien influence. I mean, most of what we've learned in our lives about any given thing has come from external. It's come from outside of ourselves. It's come in a way that's been far outside of our own thinking so that we have been impressed upon so as to internalize that very thing. That's what we're talking about here. So like, just because we say internal doesn't mean that this is not an an alien enlightenment. That's what it is. And if it's alien outside of ourselves that we can't manufacture it from the inside out, then it just shows that that must come from God. So again, collapsing them, is, is super dangerous. And we end up in like, you know, the practical outworkings of that are things like, oh man, get ready for some more triggering, like weird altar calls or acquire yeah. the fire or I don't know, like emotionalism or I would say like overtly overemphasized, staged and put together like pleas for coming before God and accepting him or I don't know, all that stuff. Yeah. I, it's it's a betrayal of what the scriptures speak to in that God does the saving. And so like when we encourage people even to like pray a sinner's prayer and say like, that's it, you're in. Like, welcome, here's like your card. So you're a card carrying yeah. member of the family of God. It's the idea of like, let's talk about the fruit that we see from God. Let's talk about the believing that he does in our lives and how that gets outwardly manifest. You know, that, that really, that is the nugget. <laughs> Yeah, well, and maybe just to wrap it up too, the on the flip side, there is a branch of reformed reformed in quotation marks theology that does actually argue that the Holy Spirit always ima- acts immediately on the human will without any sort of outside mm. call, and it's called hyper Calvinism. Yeah, right, exactly. Right? So that that term gets thrown around around a lot on the internet, and usually, like an Armenian, just means like you're really, really Calvinist, which is not what that term means, right. uh, and it's kind of one of those like cat call. Um, arguments that like someone who just doesn't like your flavor of Calvinism will call you a hyper Calvinist. What hyper Calvinism actually is, is this idea that the Holy Spirit acts apart from, apart from external created means, right? That he only ever acts immediately on the human will. And so this leads to all sorts of weird theology, like, like preaching isn't necessary, right? These are the people who won't won't preach to people, won't share the gospel to people in the second person. They won't say, you should trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ died for you. They'll say, well, that's always in the third person. Jesus Christ died for the elect. And then they just leave the Holy Spirit 
to act immediately apart from the actual external call. So the hyper-Calvinism ignores and refuses to actually have an external call. And this is just dangerous, right? And I think it's the other last little point to make to go back to your peanut butter jelly analogy. I actually the other day had to have a sandwich that was just peanut butter because we ran out of jelly <laughs> and I was really hungry. It's not good. I mean, it's not like the worst thing in the world. Like it's it's not, it's, but it's not good. But when you buy those peanut butter slash jelly jars that it's just a weird gimmicky product. Right. But you know what they don't do? They don't blend it together so thoroughly that it's exactly. just peanut butter jelly. Like exactly. it's, it's still striated. And that's because there's value in in that product, there's value in being able to distinguish between what's peanut butter and what's jelly visually. Mm-hmm. There's the there's a value in that presentation. But so also in this analogy, man, this is getting really stretched thin. Like too much peanut butter jelly over over so much bread. Um The value in this is that we also need to delineate and distinguish, although never separate the, the external and the internal call, right? When the preacher, when when this goes back to our reform preaching series, when we were going through Joel Beakey's book, the preacher extends the external call, understanding that he has no ability to determine who receives the internal call. Right on. However, the preacher extends the external call in the full hope and prayer-driven preparation and preaching and the unction of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will join himself to that external call to bring about the effectual calling of all of his elect. Right and on. so when a preacher is preparing their message, they understand, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't, ma- I can't make this land in people's hearts. So I do my best to, to prepare an effective and a accurate and a faithful external call. And I just pray that the Holy Spirit lands this in the heart of the people. That's the reformed position. And that's the reformed thought on these two things. And the last thing just I'll say to sort of like sneak peek next week, this culminates, as we've sort of said now several times in in referencing Paul in Romans, this culminates in the creation of faith, right? Faith comes, maybe like in parentheses, faith comes to be by hearing and hearing of the word of Christ or by the word of Christ. So next week we're going to talk about what it is that faith actually is, because this is, this is the key delineator in reformed theology and Protestant theology. It's also what distinguishes true, genuine biblical reformed theology from some of the sort of like pretender reformed theologies that are out there. So I'll leave it at that. I think people who've listened to our show probably have an inkling of what those pretender reformed theologies are, but, um, yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited about this topic. I'm excited about uh, this series. I think it's a good a good beginning point for us as we sort of move out of the more like metaphysical abstract stuff that we've been talking about now into like the nuts and bolts of the Christian life. And uh, the listeners who've been with us for a while listening in on these conversations will know that we often give some kind of call at the end of our episodes. And I'm going to do that, but in a slightly different way. And that is, I would say, based on what you've just said, Tony, if you have in your life a church and a pastor in particular who gives that clarion call week after week, would you reach out and say thank you, that you appreciate that? Because there's so many pastors and we need pastors who are 
going to continue to do this, who actually pray that they would get out of the way and, but not just pray that way, but when they construct their sermons, that they would be devoid of like extemporaneous, unnecessary illustrations. Illustrations are fine, but it'd be a devoid of the kind of salesmanship or reader's digest version of the scriptures that might try to appeal to different people or to give five steps on how to make your marriage better. Or here are 10 things we can learn from Daniel's prayer life, but that give this clarion call week after week that are giving forward the external full call of the gospel and all of its beautiful data so that the Holy Spirit might do his thing. And that represents and respect that process as what is normative. It doesn't need to be added to. It's good and best on its own. So if you have a pastor that does that, I would highly encourage you to just send them a note of praise and thankfulness because they're due double honor if they're doing that very thing. And that's the thing that we need to hear week after week. When we hear that on the Lord's Day, then we can use books effectively like Be Thou My Vision when we bring it into our personal life as we worship with our families and by ourselves daily so that we are sure that the Holy Spirit is empowering the good work that God is delivering to us. You know, it strikes me like there are certain places in our lives where we recognize these principles again, but then we kind of divorce them when we come into like this spiritual realm. So again, many people know I've said this a couple of times, so bear with me. I'm studying again for a giant test. And anybody who's ever studied for anything, anybody's kids for studying for anything, realize it'd be ridiculous if you just prayed that God would help you pass the test. That, that's not how that works at all. And yet what God does is when we work and we try to process the material that he's given us to study. And, you know, for instance, in my life, I'm constantly praying. I always pray before I open up the books and I ask that God would be my teacher, you know, that he, I would learn on my knees, that he would be the one that illuminates this, even as I try to process it myself. So we understand that again, it's one thing to have data in front of us, but it's nothing for the data to be made alive to us to grow within us, to be real to us, to be real. And I recognize even in dumb things in the temporal world that I need God's help to understand. And if that's true of the smallest things and things that we would study intellectually, how much more is that true of these grand spiritual mysteries, which require a revealing? That's what a mystery is. You know, it's like the duty, the blessing of kings to go out and search out knowledge and to have that mystery revealed to them. That comes from the outside. That is an alien knowledge that we do not possess on our own. Let's not pretend like we do. I just think we should stop pretending like that. If we can't understand basic things because it's hard to learn, then how much more can we understand these really great spiritual mysteries? We need the Lord. We need the Lord Jesus Christ, who is who is our brother to come and enlighten us. So I'm excited about us continuing in this conversation. And the last thing I'll say about this is, again, one of the great resources, you've heard us say this before, is all of these things that are available to us in this day and age that help us to go dive deep in the scriptures. So as we, for instance, read and process and see the grand arc of God's narrative plan and salvation, that as we understand and see those things, we might pray to the Holy Spirit and cry out, Lord, help us to understand. Here's my unbelief. Help us believe. And again, one of those great resources is Logos Bible Software. It's true. It is a great resource. And one of the things uh, that you may not know that we should have said earlier, Be Thou My Vision by Jonathan Gibson is available on Logos Bible Software. So it is. Yes. if you want to have not only one of the best liturgical daily worship resources that there is available, uh, fully indexed, so you can just click on the Bible references. They'll pop right up on your computer. Uh, you can pick up a fundamentals package for $50, which has a bunch of resources. Uh, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash fundamentals. And then right now, you can purchase uh, Be Thou My Vision from Logos, 
and you can get that uh, regularly for $23.99. I'm not sure if the sale price will be the same for you, but right now it's like giving me a sale price of $16.79. So it's a great resource. Yes. It's a great tool. Um, you really can't go wrong with with utilizing good resources, and Logos is one of the best that's out there. Yeah, you get like you get the Bible, you get commentaries, you get so all to your point, you're getting this lovely instruction that you can trust. And then as if that weren't good enough, like you get all these other resources too. And it's yeah. like you said, fully indexed. So I, I will say the last thing I promise I'll say about this book is if you want it, if you're a person that's like, I love Logos and yeah, I need to have this in the physical form. That's fine. I understand. I have it in physical form too. This, one of the things I appreciate about this book is one, you and I've talked about this. It's handsome. Like it comes yeah, with like its own, it's like, sli- it's like jacket, like it's like a slide thing. So that that's cool. But it's also thoughtful because like, there's basically three sections in the book, like one for like the confessions and the catechism. It comes with three ribbons. Nice. So it gives you like the instruction of like oh, where to put the ribbon. Like you got to appreciate the thoughtfulness of that, right? Like making it really ribbon. easy. Yeah. For you to like flip to the part that you need to be in. So one to mark what day you're in, one to mark the catechism, like one to mark the confession. It's super thoughtful. So again, like trying to make it easy for people like lay people like me to really delve into liturgy daily is a super beautiful thing. So let's get after it, loved ones. Get rid of that devotionalism stuff. Stop saying devotions in quiet time. Let's talk about daily worship. Indeed. Well, Jesse, we've gone past our time and uh, it was a good conversation. So I think that's valuable. But (laughs) until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. (laughs) 